0: Please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And while you turn there, actually after you've turned there, I'm going to pray. Luke chapter 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Pray that you would touch our hearts this morning, touch our affections, and captivate our attention. Fix our minds and our hearts securely on Christ, and make your grace irresistible to all. As we normally sing on a Sunday morning, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Help us to see Christ and make him dear to us. Cause us to walk in faithful obedience and help us to clearly see your word. Teach us to wholly depend upon your spirit as we hear your word and think through the application of your word. Align our hearts to the veracity of your truth, that we may honor you in all that we think and do. For your name's sake we pray, amen. This morning we begin a short three part series in both the preparation of this Christmas season and also throughout this uh, period right up to the end of the year, we want to focus on the person of Jesus Christ in the announcement of the coming of the Messiah and also the significance of the future reign of Christ. So we're going to cover both his kingdom reign and also the announcement of his arrival as the king who will reign. But we will look at Luke and not Matthew. I know that Matthew focuses on both of those aspects, but I see it very clearly in the gospel of Luke as well. Luke writes to a Gentile by the name of Theophilus. You will see that in chapter 1. He takes him back to the beginning of the life of Jesus. Now when we think about the beginning of the life of Jesus, we generally think about his birth, and that is right, because his birth does speak about the beginning of his life on earth, but Jesus' life, I should say the Messiah's life does not begin at his birth. The Messiah's story begins before Jesus was born. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 through to 7. Consequently, when he that is Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is before Jesus came. Into the uh, into the world, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That is the incarnation. That is the birth of Jesus Christ. The Son of God precedes time, but in a moment in history. The eternal son breaks through the barrier of time and enters the world of time created by him. So that in a time he may become the savior of the world. It breaks my small little brain to think about how the eternal son of God comes and lives under the restrictions of time. For a short period of time because he will reign for eternal time over the things that he has created what i find in the birth of jesus christ is the blessing of understanding god's fulfillment of his promises only a true god can foretell events and bring them into fruition Allah cannot do that Buddha cannot do that. I know that there's a man by the name of Nostradamus who seemed to have foretold events. And often he would get a few things right. Most of the time it's wrong. But now and again he would say the right thing. He's like a broken clock. That is not the same as what God does with prophecy. God foretells events, but he also brings it about. These validate, confirms, and accomplishes God's own prophetic voice. That is a sign of a true God. God challenges the idols in the Old Testament. Well, if you are true, well, tell me what's going to be. That's not good enough. Don't just tell me when it's going to happen now you accomplish it bring it about that is the sign of a true and a living god god does that with the birth of jesus christ he tells us that there's going to be a messiah and then he brings about the arrival of the messiah in the way that he predicted it would come about in luke chapter 1 from verse 26 through to 38 we have the announcement of the Son of God to Mary. And That is the pericope or the short section that we will give attention to. So if I ask you, what is the birth of Jesus about? What is the natural response to that question? Well, he came to what? Die for sinners right that is generally what we think and that is true Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sin you know how difficult it is to say that he shall save I, I had to say that like four times before I got I, I tend to say shh and shh quite often that is true he came because of sin he came to be the deliverer of his people we can also go to John chapter 1 where it says that he came to reveal the father John chapter 1 verse 14 through to 18 but listen to verse 18 no one has ever seen God the only God the implication is the only one to see God is God the only God who is at the father's side just let that settle No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, who is God, has made him known. In other words, God reveals God. It is this one that John speaks about as the Logos, who comes into the world to reveal the Father. It is interesting to me that as you scan um, uh, books on cults, A lot of the times, cults want to reveal the Father. There's either a personal vision given to the person or some sort of experience that they've they've gone through to tell you about this God. They all claim to have a special message from God. But what does John say? The only God who is at the right hand of the Father, the only one to reveal God, is God himself. True biblical Christianity is the only way to understand who God is. Cults do not give you true understanding of God. Islam will not give you a true understanding of God. Why? Because Jesus is not revealed in those cults. Only through understanding the scriptures does God reveal who he is. God does not reveal himself through heresies and cults, but only in truth. And the truth is found in Jesus Christ. Now, Luke continues telling about the arrival of Jesus Christ in a slightly different way, similar to Matthew, but uh, slightly different. He sets the stage of the revelation of the Son of Man or the King who will reign over the earth by speaking about the lowly nature of Jesus' birth. While he could have identified the salvific nature of Jesus' arrival, while he could have spoken about the revealing nature of Jesus' coming. While he could have spoken about the fulfillment, the specificity of the fulfillment of Jesus' arrival, the unique nature of the Logos, instead he chooses to speak about the lowly birth of the one who will reign. The king, I should say the baby, who will reign as king. I know Matthew speaks about the kingship of Jesus quite often but you will see in the section that Luke does exactly the same but adds a little bit of an element to it. His association and identification with man in his desperate state. You will see that Jesus identifies with the lowly. Now next week we will look a little bit more at the significance of his arrival in terms of his reign over what he has created. But this morning, let's give particular attention to the grace of God in his message to Mary. I don't know what sermon title I gave in um, the bulletin, but that is what I'm going to be speaking about. This sermon is really a foundation for next week and the following week sermon. Somebody told me, I think it's a week ago or just this week that um, I always have uh, part one and part two. I, I, I tend to have that where Stephen had one sermon. So I, I thank you for the comparison and I, I thank you for the chastisement. But uh, get used to it. Part one of <laughs> of my sermon. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from god to a city of galilee named nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was joseph of the house of david the virgin's name was mary suppose that it is interesting that this passage is structured in this way there's a divine message in verse 26 And that divine message is actually culminated only at the end of verse 33. So from 31 to 33 is the actual message. But it begins in 26, so it's building up to that point. And so we have the divine message sent, but then also you have the content of the divine message. And that is the two parts of my sermon. This morning we will look at the sending of this divine message. The way that you can break this section, or at least verse 26 up, is very easy. Verse 26 and 27 is very easy. The main part of the sermon, if you remember the block diagram, would be Gabriel was sent from God. That is your main sentence. There are two qualifiers, and you can see it in the small little word called a preposition, and it appears in the middle of verse 26 and the beginning of verse 27. Take note. Gabriel was sent from God to a city, and then to a virgin. And there's another two, but that's a subordinate clause, and I will explain that in a moment's time. But those two components are the most important elements in these two verses. Gabriel was sent from God to a city and to a virgin. Now, the first detail... In the divine message of the birth of Jesus Christ is highlighted in a place and then to a woman. When Luke says here, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent, what is he talking about? Was it Mary's sixth month? Was it it the sixth month of the the reign of uh, Herod? Well, context will tell us that it is actually the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And you can read the rest of the chapter to figure that one out. But it is a time stamp. So six months in, Elizabeth is pregnant, and we tend to ignore these time details, but they are significant. They tell us when things take place. So six months in, which means that um, Mary would be how many months pregnant when John is born? Come and do the math. Three months, right? Three months pregnant. You're... only a woman would know that, right? Come on, man. Six months pregnant. So by the time she gives birth, it is full term. Jesus would only be about three months pregnant. I should say. <laughs> Mary would only be about six months. Three months. Three months, yes, three months. That month, six months, that month Gabriel was sent by God, but he was sent prior to this, which is probably six months prior to this, to Zechariah and his wife, which is in the beginning of the chapter, which we will not look at. So this is his second appearance in this little uh, area, I should say Jerusalem, but it's his third appearance in the entirety of Scripture. So Gabriel is a significant player, but he doesn't appear a lot. So six months after uh, Elizabeth conceives, Gabriel comes from God, and we get that in the passive form in verse 26. Gabriel was sent from God. In both appearances, um, earlier in uh, Luke and also in Daniel, which is the other occurrence, um, in both appearances, I'm taking this as one, he's always carrying a message. He's always conveying something to uh, God's people. Look at verse 19 of Luke chapter 1. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent, and you have the same idea in verse uh, 26, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The same angel was sent to Zechariah, who was a priest. And he says the message that I'm going to give you, Zechariah, is good news. Why is it good news? He's not the Messiah. Well, because John was the what? Forerunner to the Messiah. So it is part and parcel of the coming of the Messiah. John needs to be there in order for this Messiah to come. But what Luke is doing here, and and. We really don't have time. I had it in my notes to go through this, but we really don't have time. In the beginning stages of Luke chapter 1, he sets up a contrast. He speaks about the person who receives the the initial message, which is Zechariah from Gabriel. And then he speaks about a little girl who receives a message down in Galilee. And I'm going to show you that in a moment's time. There's this huge contrast that is taking place. He doesn't say to Mary that this is a message of good news, even though it is. But he says to Zechariah, listen, this message that I'm giving you is good news. Why does he do that? Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall this be? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What are you talking about? How can my wife? give birth, doesn't that sound familiar? It does. Abraham, how can this be? And Sarah says, I'm old, I'm crinkled. There's no possible way. I was going to say wrinkled, but it came out wrong. I I don't fix my words when I say it wrong. Zechariah says the same thing. Now look at Mary's response, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? You see that there's similarity? Luke wants you to see that. So when you go back home and you read this to your family in preparation for uh, Christmas, take note of the comparisons. Take note of the similarities that is taking place. What is Luke doing? Luke is drawing a stark contrast between Zechariah and Mary. Let me show you. Who is Zechariah? He's a Priest, And you find this in verse 8 and 9. While he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. You know what's happening, right? He's in preparation of uh, um, uh, Leviticus chapter 16 in the sacrifice for the people. He goes in on behalf of the people to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude is waiting in anticipation. He's either struck dead or God receives the sacrifice. Zechariah goes in. He disbelieves and he's struck with muteness. Is that a word? To be unable to speak for at least three months. Uh, Sorry, for at least six months. God shuts. His mouth. Why? Because he disbelieved the message from God. He didn't believe it. And you may be thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on. Why is he being treated such, so harshly? Because Mary did the same thing. Yes, but not exactly. And I'll point that out in a moment's time. Let's look at this contrast. The guy who's a priest, who's in the presence of God, who serves God, who hears God, And now it has a message from God by an angel. The same language is used. I was sent by God to you, to speak to you. And then verse 26, Gabriel was sent from God. The angel first goes to the temple and now he goes to a city. Let me draw the contrast. God goes to a person that you would expect that would receive the message of God. God goes by means of an angel to a person that knows the revelation of God, the Old Testament. God goes to a person that you would expect to believe the word of God, right? He's a priest, what do you expect him to do? Sure, this is an angel. I am going to accept what you say. And what does he say? Hey, no way. Uh, uh-uh. uh, This is not happening. Verse 26. In the sixth month, so six months later, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city. Where's Jerusalem? Up on a mount. Where's the temple? The highest peak in Jerusalem is the temple. Where is it going down? Take note of the contrast. To a city, which is not on the mount, name a city of Galilee, which is lower than Jerusalem. Name Nazareth, which is even lower as you go out of the city. To a virgin, which is a woman, betrothed to a man. What? Luke is doing, he's saying, look at the stark contrast. God goes by means of this angel to a man who should receive his word. And then God goes by means of this angel and sends a message to a woman who's down in the dumps. See the contrast? Who do you think should be rejecting this message because they don't get frequent visitations or messages from God? It is the woman. It is Mary. Who should not be believing this message. Galilee is about 130 kilometers outside of Jerusalem. A region in low esteem among uh, Jewish people. It is known in Matthew chapter 4 verse 15 as Galilee of the Gentiles. Um, sorry, my tablet just froze. It is known in Jerusalem as the um, it, by the Jews as a city of the Gentiles. Okay, let me get to my notes. Give me a second. And Nazareth was even lower on the social ladder. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament, and you can understand why Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Because it's such a low outlying region of about 400 people. Who comes from there? There's no king who's going to come from Nazareth. This poor, unimportant city, tell me who? lives there Luke is picturing or sketching a picture of descent from the highest place and the most religious place in all the world yes it is to the most lowliest place in Jerusalem a message from God to the temple then to Galilee to Nazareth and then to a woman. Now follow his logic. Look at verse 26 again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God, from the, the glories of heaven, to a city named Galilee, uh, um, city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin, to a man whose name was Joseph. But the angel didn't go. Joseph, But follow Luke's logic. What is the lowest point of his um, picture here? It is Joseph. Mary is low in the social ladder, but notice who's below her. She is betrothed to a man who is of the house of David. Hang on, that doesn't make sense, right? So keep that in mind, and I'll get back to that later on. The lowest part of Luke's descent is the house of David. There's a clear visual image of condescension coming down even more and more and more and more until you get to Mary. But even below Mary, there's another level. And you can see that in the three prepositions that I mentioned. To a city, to a virgin, and this virgin who's now underneath her is betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph of the house of David. From the heart of Israel's religious center came John the forerunner to the valley in the midst of the Gentiles where the Messiah came from. His logic doesn't fit reality. How can the greater come from the lesser? Because he's making a point that this Jesus, who's coming from this woman, associates with normal people. Didn't go to the temple. Didn't go to the rich rulers. Didn't go to the rulers. Didn't go to the kings. Didn't go to the rich of the world. He came to a little girl in Nazareth. Why this contrast? Two reasons. To show God's humility in being born in squalor and then to show God's exaltation of the Son to come from nothing in this world. I I read, uh, I think about a year ago, as I was preparing for last year's sermon, um, how uh, BLM has actually stolen Luke chapter 1. And they say that Jesus was born uh, to associate with a, the poor in the ghettos of the Bronx because he was born in squalor and and poverty he wasn't born for the rich he wasn't born for the white he wasn't born for for others he was born for only those who are poor who come from the Bronx yeah I don't think so the point of his being born in poverty so that he can associate with the struggles of humanity Now look at Luke's connection. Who is Theophilus? He was a ruler or a general or a leading man, but he was also a Gentile. Who would better associate with Jesus being born in a city where Gentiles populate or are prominent? It would be a Gentile. That would be of interest to him. So Luke draws his huge contrast to say, listen, Jesus wasn't born in the temple. To people who serve in the temple, he was born to someone like you. A Gentile. Luke is showing the grace of God in sending the Son, not to the elite, not to the priest, not to the most important people of the world, but those who are regular people. This gives greater appreciation for what Hebrews says, that he knows the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what it means to struggle as a man. And when we think about that verse, what do we think of sin? That's not what he's talking about. Jesus was born in poverty. He was born despised by the Jews. He knew what it means to be rejected. He knew what it means to struggle. He knew what it meant to go through suffering and hardship, to have lack, to be in need, to work hard with his hands. Jesus wasn't born with a silver spoon. Was it a golden spoon? You know what I mean. What grace that God would send his son to be born in such Horrendous conditions to save unworthy sinners like us. Jesus was not born for kings and for priests alone. They can be saved, but he was also born to identify with. So Luke draws this huge contrast to say, look at the message that goes to the temple, and it was not believed. And look at the message that goes to a young girl in Nazareth. And her response, you will see in a moment's time, is different to Zechariah. The second detail in this divine message is God's grace shown to this girl, Mary. So not only does Jesus identify with sinners by being born in poverty to a people who are of regular status, but also God shows tremendous grace to the one who would carry God in human flesh. Nothing in Mary's life could have prepared her for this moment I read Matthew and Luke interchangeably just to understand the whole entire dynamic of what's taking place here. I find Joseph's, I feel sorry for the guy, but I do find his interaction pretty um, funny. And, and I'll explain that in a moment's time. Look at verse 27. If you have read Luke chapter 1, you will notice that the introduction to Zechariah and his wife, it speaks of who they are. With Mary, notice what it says, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name uh, uh, whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The construction is so awkward. He starts with her virtue and her character before he names her. Normally, it's the other way around where they are named and then some description is given about who they are. Look at the, again, the the contrast between the two. If um, you go back to chapter 1, he speaks of uh, Zechariah. Let me just see if I can find it. Uh, Verse 6, verse 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. So you see, Zechariah is mentioned and um, um, his uh, lineage is mentioned, uh, Elizabeth is mentioned and her connection to the priestly line is mentioned and then her, their characters are mentioned and they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly In all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And rightly you could say the Yahweh. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So it sets the tone for who they were. You get a little bit about the lineage and you get a little bit about their character. With Mary, he swaps it around. He doesn't give her name up first or lineage up first. He tells her who she is. That's important. Because you want to know more about this woman who's going to bear God in human flesh. So notice what he says about her. To a virgin betrothed to a man. And we're going to give a little bit of attention to that. Imagine how this goes down. The angel goes to Mary first and says to her, You are going to be a child, and we will get to that later on, because the content there is just too much. But he says to her, you are going to be a child, um, and you will call his name Jesus, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and be a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Imagine her going to Joseph, and you will find this in chapter 1 of Matthew, saying, An angel came and visited me last night. And he says, I am pregnant. It's not what you think, though. He says that I'm pregnant. But it's not what you think. And Joseph's receiving this information, wondering, hang on, wait a minute. An angel came to you? A little girl in Nazareth? Do you see the the stark contrast? The, the, The guy who's supposed to receive it. Doesn't and this little girl, she believes it off the bat. And I'll explain what she means later on in verse 34. It is true, trust me, Joseph. It, it's not what you think. I, I'm gonna be a child. Joseph, being an honorable, honorable man, did not believe her. The guy's thinking, there's no way an angel visited you. Come on, man. Ha. There's no way something like this happens. How do, do people just fall pregnant pregnant? That's not possible. Joseph was a real man. He's thinking like a real man. I- imagine somebody comes to you and you are engaged and she says, "Listen guy, I'm telling you the truth. there was an angel. And he said I was pregnant. Believe me, I'm walking away. There is no way. That's exactly what Joseph does. And we shouldn't be hard on this guy. What normal man would stay around? It is only when the angel comes to me and says, what are you doing? Why do you, you want to walk away? The reason why he wanted to walk away is to preserve from being stoned to death. He loved her and he didn't want her to to be um, viewed uh, with ill or even um, uh, found out that she was uh, pregnant and, and, and eventually die because of that. Anybody who breaks the marriage covenant within the, the engagement period would be stoned to death. It was only after the angel comes to me and says, take her as your wife that he stays around. The words here to a virgin is emphatic. It highlights her character and her condition. It tells her of who she is. Purity in that day was a high virtue. Today it's not so much. Today it's, oh no, that's just, that's your culture. You don't, you don't have to be pure anymore. Just do what you want. It is minimized today, but the Bible has a high view of purity. And for them to mention her character up front is to identify who she is. She's a person who honors God with her body. There's so much confusion about how we should understand this word. Was she just a young little girl or was she pure? The answer is yes, it's both. So let's move on. I'm not spending papers writing on the, the little word virgin. There's, there's enough information in the text to understand what it means. Look at verse 34. After he tells her that she's going to experience childbirth supernaturally, Mary says to the angel, how will this be? Explain this a little bit more. Since I'm a virgin, I've not been with a man. So, ah." Uh, This is not possible. I'm not saying I disbelieve you. I just want to know how does this work? That's the difference between her words and Zechariah. When he said, uh, this is not possible because I am old. He disbelieves what the angel says. And Mary says, "Um, can you just clarify? Because I'm not of that kind of woman that would have a baby before child, uh, before marriage. It says that uh, this message from from Gabriel comes to a virgin betrothed to a man. There's another thing that I have to highlight here. Not only her purity is highlighted, but her status. Betrothed to a man. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Let me ask you if let me first read this verse. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being just, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Are they married? Are they married at this stage? Why is he divorcing her? They are not married yet. They are engaged. That is the word that we would use or betrothed in the Jewish context. He calls her wife, though. And she, he is called her what? Husband. Hang on. But they're not married. Yes. We struggle with this because we've got a different understanding of engagement. So when Fabian and Taryn were engaged, they were engaged, but as long as they were not married, both parties had the freedom to leave, right? Not that Taryn would have been happy with that, but both parties had the freedom to leave, and if they found any fault in their character, they would be fine, and that's why they go through marriage counseling. We wanna break them up. That's the whole purpose of marriage counseling, right? To make sure that they they don't end up together, and if they still wanna end up together, get our thumbs up. Engagement in our culture is an option. Some people don't even get engaged and if you are engaged it doesn't actually mean that you will get married because you can break that engagement at any time. Not so in the Jewish culture. You get engaged, you get betrothed to that person and for a year long you don't get to be with them. You stay at home with your mom and dad, and he stays at home with his mom and dad as he prepares a house for you. And as you are being prepared and uh, remain pure and devoted to him as your would-be husband. Yet he is your husband without being your husband. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. That separation demonstrates devotion on both parties. To the marriage bond. They're not married officially. But they are committed to being with each other. Even though they are a year apart from one another. You don't get to see. Well I suppose you can't see them. But you don't get to be with them as married couples would be. This shows commitment and devotion to that partner. Faithful for at least a year without constant contact. That is what betrothal meant. I'm committed to this individual. At the end of the betrothal period, the family has to demonstrate that she was faithful. She was not a loose person. And as the husband would receive that demonstration, it's actually the elders would receive that demonstration of her, her, her purity, then only would they come together and be officially Married During that engagement period, if he finds fault in her, he can what? Divorce her. The engagement was a legal agreement between both parties that I am yours and you are mine. And the only thing that will separate us is if there's anything that is, um, how does Jesus put it, if there's marital infidelity if he has been with another or she has been with another man, then only can divorce take place. Unlike our engagements, which are optional or free or open, Jewish engagement was a marital commitment to that individual. You belong to him unless something has, uh, indicates that you are uh, not able to be married with that person. So, he demonstrates her purity right up front because that is significant for her betrothal. And then he speaks about her being able to conceive. What is he doing with who she is? He's demonstrating Mary's character. He's saying that this is the kind of woman she is. Pure and devoted. What an example. What an example to women today. I mean, we don't have that betrothal agreement. But if you enter into an engagement, be committed. The man is called her husband and the woman is called his wife. The tense that this word betrothal is found in implies that it is permanent. It has begun and continues to to go on until something else shows that the, the agreement can no longer stand. If you were found to contravene this agreement, you could be stoned to death depending on the nature of the sin. God shows grace to Mary, not because she was perfect. He shows grace to Mary so that he can bring his perfect son into a world where imperfect sinners need salvation. All that to say, she was engaged to a man named Joseph. So remember the descent in view to a city, to a virgin, to a man who was subordinate to the virgin, uh, whose name was joseph that is stuck in there as a unimportant it is significant theologically but it's not the main point of the section the message to um uh mary was so this sub point becomes significant because in luke's mind he wants to demonstrate that the line of the kings have been so eroded that in his mind he's brought it down to below the status of this girl in a city called Nazareth. A message coming from God to the temple. To a city in Galilee. To Nazareth. To a woman. To a man named Do- Joseph who's of the house of David. The lowest part of the descent is the line line. Of the kings of Judah. Why is that important? Because the promise in 2 Samuel, as you will see next week, is that someone from the line of David will sit on the throne of David. And what is Luke saying? That line is gone. They are no longer kings. He is not mentioned first. She is. Joseph is described as being one who's descended from the house of David. That is the kingly line. Should Jesus not have been born in a king's palace? Should Jesus not have been born in a king's room, in a king's quarters? But he's not. The whole point is to say that the line has been eroded. You cannot recognize the line of kings anymore. Yet Joseph's name means increase. But there is no increase for this man. By trade he was a carpenter, not a king, not the son of the king. The line of David is all but kingly. What does this mean? The line of kings has fallen from the splendor of Solomon's temple to the highly positioned of a carpenter. The lowly functional work of making tables and breaking rocks. It is placed last in the sentence to highlight the lowest part of the descent of the line of David. It was a memory of a long gone era that has no significance in This time it is to this person Mary and to this man Joseph that Jesus would be born. This line of the house of David we will look at that next week the the tremendous significance of it has huge theological implication. But Luke's point at this stage is to say man it has fallen. The line of kings is so broken that it's unrecognizable. And then, as the camera pans back to Mary, he just, he just mentions one line, not even a full clause, just one little line of Joseph. And Joseph, of the house of David, he goes back to Mary. Mary. The Virgin's name was Mary. The idea of Virgin is that she was an untouched young girl. And I can tell you, I've read quite a few papers on her age. It goes between 13 and 16, because it was common for them to be betrothed at 13 and be married by 14. Um, We don't know. That, That is highly speculative. We know that she was young and we know that she was pure. And that's the point. Please don't come and tell me, oh no, she was 13. Show me, show me, and then I'll give you a backhand. Luke ends this introduction to the message with merely saying her name, this girl, this pure girl, her name was Mary. The main point is that God shows grace to this woman, and you'll see that in a moment's time. Do I have time left? Yeah, I've got five minutes left. So that she would be able to bear the God who will be man. So, let me ask you this question Was Mary special? Hmm, interesting. Was Mary holier than any other woman on earth? How do you answer a Catholic that says, Mary was born without sin? Look at the text, verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And some translations would add, Blessed are you among women, which is not in uh, the more um, favored manuscripts. So you can just draw a line through that. causes confusion. So it says favored one. The Lord is with you. So is Mary. Then special is Mary, uh, somebody who was super spiritual. I know how we use that differently, but was the she? See what I mean? Was she a person who stood out amongst every other woman that she would bear the child, Jesus? I want you to pay attention that it says nothing of the super spirituality of Mary, but it speaks about her character. Nothing of a religious status. It does of um, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They were both blameless or righteous before the Lord. But nothing of Mary. It describes them as walking faithfully, but Mary, no. Why is that the case? See, the Catholic view has infiltrated our thinking to think that Mary was one of those holier-than-thou persons. Yet the description of her has got nothing to do with her holiness. It has to do with her purity of life. Let me say it this way. This may shock you. Mary was a sinner just like you and I that needed grace. So, how then can you pray to a sinner for forgiveness if she herself needs forgiveness even Mary fled to God how do I know that look at chapter 1 verse 46 and Mary said one of my favorite sections in the entire chapter of the gospel of Luke my soul magnifies Yahweh and my spirit rejoices in what God my savior she was saved by God so if she was saved by God, she was not born perfect. Perfect people needs no salvation. Did Jesus, did, did Jesus come to salvation? No. Why? Why would he need salvation? He's perfect. Why did Mary come to salvation? She's a sinner. You have an answer to the Catholics. Let me show you the problem. Catholics say that let me read it to you, 1854, December 8th, Pope Pius IX, interestingly, Pius IX, in the bull, *Ineffabilis*, says this, the most holy virgin Mary was in the first moment of her conception by unique gift of grace, grace means clearly something different, and privilege of almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of mankind, preserved free from all stain of original sin, In quote. What? Mary was born without the stain of original sin. You have an answer for that. Mary came to saving faith because she calls God my Savior. How do you prove that? Go back to, while well, you are in the text. Look at verse 28 again. And he came to her and said, Greetings, literally, you must rejoice, O favored one. That means Mary was a receiver of grace. That word favored one does not mean giver of grace. That's how the Catholics interpret it. Yet, If you go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, it is used of saints. Notice how it is used. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He, same word, favored on us in the Beloved, bestowed on us in the Beloved, used in the same way as it is found here in Luke chapter 1. So when you read it, it says, Greetings, or rejoice, one on whom grace has been bestowed. Another one, in other words, you were saved by God's grace. The Lord is with you. If the same word is used of all saints in, in, in meaning that they came to saving faith by God's grace, then it is the same meaning when it is applied to Mary. See, Catholics are trying to make sense of the perfect, righteous holiness of Jesus Christ, born of a sinful woman. They cannot make that connect. What does the angel say? The the, the child would be in your womb. He would be born of you, not born of Joseph. God showed grace to Mary in saving her and not making her holier than any other person. She's the receiver of Grace. And then finally, she found grace and favor in the eyes of God. You see this in the last part of verse 38. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. God has shown kindness and grace to you. You received what you did not deserve. I love what Mary does. Look at verse 29 and she was greatly troubled the saying and tried to discern it <laughs> the word literally is dialogizomai i love that word dialogizomai that zomai means there's something that she is doing herself logid is the word word or saying or debating and dies through. She is talking through this to herself. Can I say she's being a woman? I'm just saying, she was greatly troubled and uh, at the saying, the words of the angel. It doesn't matter that it was an angel that, that, that appeared to her. She's not saying, hey, who, who are you? She's saying, hey, 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 hang on, hang on. What did you just say? Let me think about this for a little while. What sort of greeting this might be? And at that stage, I'm going to leave it till next week. And we'll look at the greeting. We'll look at how God shows tremendous grace, not only to her, but to the entire world in sending forth the son born in squalor. Yet he will reign over all the earth. Spurgeon said, my soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit doth rejoice. To thee my Savior and my God, I lift up my joyful voice. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we want to give thanks to you for the revelation of Jesus Christ and in such a momentous moment in history where you appeared In grace, through your messenger, Gabriel, to grant a message, a divine message to show that you have determined to send forth your son at this stage in history. Thank you for such grace. Thank you for the beauty of your word in laying out clearly that we do not have to be confused about Mary. We do not have to be confused about her perfection and her holiness, that your word is absolutely true on every aspect, that we all are sinners in need of divine grace. And like you've saved her, so you can save today. We pray that you would show grace to sinners hearing your word this morning. Bless us as we seek to bring glory and honor to your name as we give thanks For your sake alone. Amen.